1: New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.
0: Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics. Today I am with Professor Ben Clift to present an amazing new book titled The IMF and the Politics of Austerity in the Wake of the Global Financial Crisis, and this is just Uh, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Welcome Ben, Uh, please can you tell us something about uh, your current affiliation and the origin of of your book?
1: Sure, thanks for having me. Uh, My name is Ben Clift, I'm a professor of political economy in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Warwick, where I've been working for the last 15 years or so. Uh, The book grows out of a research grant I won from the Leverhulme Trust a few years back, Uh, In the wake of the crisis, I wanted to explore how economic ideas were changing and what I call the politics of economic ideas and and what what political factors were shaping the way, um, if you like, economic orthodoxy seemed to be shifting since the crisis. And in particular, I focused in on the IMF as a key kind of author and source of economic orthodoxy. I want to understand how they were changing their ideas and their kind of prescriptive policy discourse as the crisis unfolded, because I saw a number of significant changes. I want to know why they happened and how they happened.
0: Let me start from page one, mm-hmm. the, which is acknowledgments. And here you mention Carlo Cottarelli, which is... Uh, an economist at the IMF, but also happened to be named, uh, even if just for a few days, uh, prime minister in Italy uh, before the parliament uh, eventually appointed uh, uh, a populist government. Uh, So Carlo Votrelli is an example of how, uh, in this book, you tell a story which is not only about economics, but very much indeed about politics, and how an institution, which is, after all, a political institution like the IMF, plays a role in the development of economic ideas, but also policies. So maybe you cannot tell us about what Carlo Quattrilli told you, but tell us about the interview you had at the IMF and uh, what did you get from, from those talks?
1: Well, Carlo and, and all the others I talked to were extremely receptive to uh, to talk to me and very generous with their time, despite being extremely busy people. And they quite enjoyed, I think, being able to speak to someone who's not straightforwardly an economist, but a political economist, to kind of convey and get a sense of how the politics of what they were doing was being understood. Um, and in particular, there was a, a pervasive sense of wanting to glean from me whether I thought the IMF was kind of doing the right kind of things to help resolve the crisis, which which I found very interesting and a little surprising. Um, At the same time, because they are all economists, there was also a sense that um, a belief in economics as a kind of science of a relatively pure kind... And the belief that that there's a kind of a scientific discipline of economics which they're all trained in and then they spend their time kind of applying that to the kind of various patients, if you like. So they see themselves, they define themselves as clinical economists. So they come along, a patient needs some treatment, be it Greece or the island or Portugal. And they have the skills as 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 scientific economists to know what treatment is required and how to diagnose the problems, and then they intervene to try and kind of repair the situation, which I found very interesting because that's a very kind of apolitical or kind of non-political view of A, what economics as a field is, and B, what the IMF as an institution is. And it's one that, whilst I was interested to hear them talk about it in that way, I couldn't really fully share their view because I see economics as inherently a kind of political discipline, because however much it claims a kind of scientific, hard science model, it's always dependent, any economic analysis is dependent upon a set of assumptions that get made, and those are always, to my mind, contestable. There's always a kind of normative dimension underpinning those. And then the IMF similarly professes to be a kind of an apolitical, technocratic, scientific organisation that stands above politics and is not kind of beholden to ideology of any kind. At the same time, by the nature of the organisation and how it's kind of imbricated in the processes of global governance, its actions are inherently at some level political in ways that perhaps the fund isn't particularly aware of or, or doesn't like to kind of foreground
0: uh, political, uh, like any other organization or more? Because uh, I have the impression that it is uh, slightly less constrained than, for example, the United Nations agencies or perhaps uh, even less constrained than the OECD where the political dimension is very important. What the states allow the organization to say. Or, I don't know, because in your book, uh, one topic, one very important topic is uh, how much there is intellectual autonomy. And uh, how much, uh, for example, the, the specialists that you interviewed are uh, autonomous, independent from the institution, and how much the institution is independent from the nations. So what is your, your take on this part?
1: Yeah, I think it's very important when analysing the IMF to kind of disaggregate and work out what part of the IMF we're talking about. Because when one talks about the IMF, you could be referring to the executive board dominated by the... Um, major shareholders, notably the United States and the kind of management leadership at that level. Or you could be talking about the staff of the IMF, which is a very different and separate body. And there's a, there's, there's kind of two traditions of IMF scholarship in politics and international relations these days. Um, a group that focuses on the kind of member states as dominant players within the IMF and they look at things like voting patterns within the executive board, and they look at shareholder power within the executive board, and they understand what the IMF does in terms of um, the kind of foreign policy interests of, say, the United States, seeing the IMF perhaps as a conduit of American foreign policy. And in that view, the IMF doesn't really have much autonomy. It does what its paymasters tell it to do. There's another tradition of scholarship of the IMF, which looks not in terms of um, member states and voting power, but looks in terms of the internal organisational culture and how that's evolved and developed. And what that scholarship has has gleaned over many decades now is that the IMF, very early on in its life, the staff of the fund, because of their level of specialist training and expertise and the knowledge bank they generated, came to know a good deal more about the kind of how the fund gets done, if you like, the processes of... Economic surveillance and loan programs and conditionalities of they understood those processes a good deal better than anyone on the executive board did, who was perhaps doing that role for a limited period of time, perhaps not with a formal training in economics and therefore the staff became relatively autonomous from the kind of the, the, the paymasters and the powerful member states who, who in theory run and certainly bankrolled the IMF. And so the staff becomes autonomous, and within that, the management becomes somewhat. So the, the, the chief economist and the managing director have a degree of autonomy. Uh, quite a significant degree of autonomy, I would argue. So the, the way I understand it, following the work of uh, Len Seabrook, is to think about this as, as th- there are certain limits on what constitutes thinkable policy, if, like things up with which the major shareholders would not put. Okay, but that's quite a broad range, and within that range, which is broader and wider than you might think, there's a lot of scope for the IMF to prioritise and select policy agendas, policy issues, policy mechanisms it favours, and to kind of take the debate where it thinks the debate needs to go, take its policy prescriptions where it thinks the policy prescription needs to go.
0: That is a very interesting interposition. Um, so. But So this is uh, where the, what we might call it, the economic ideology or the economic thought of the institution is developed. Uh, But the book is also about how much this has changed during and because of the crisis, probably. So can you tell us something about, uh, given these dynamics that you have described, what happened in the economic, in the set of economic ideas of the IMF during the crisis and after it?
1: Okay, so I think primarily you can see the pre-crash IMF, it's slightly crude, but there's a kind of an institution of the Washington consensus, so it broadly accepts the kind of the um, uh, new classical orthodoxy in economic policy, um, which assumed that markets by and large were probably efficient and stabilising, which assumed that such economic stabilisation as did need to take place should primarily be conducted through monetary policy and that was the most efficient set of mechanisms. There were a range of problems with fiscal policy, it was kind of too politicised, there were leads and lags associated with the effects that it might have, so it was very hard to make fiscal policy interventions timely. And so for those and a range of other kind of more ideological reasons of kind of opposition to big government and public spending, if you like, the IMF had come to take a fairly minimalist view of the role of fiscal policy within, the, within economic policy, focused primarily on things like inflation targeting um, regimes and monetary policy issues, and it thought financial markets by and large were probably relatively efficient, relatively stable, and were relatively good at pricing risk. Now, obviously, the global financial crisis 2007 89 pretty much blew all of those ideas out of the water not only in the kind of policy real-world realm, but also, interestingly, within the discipline of economics up to a degree. There were many who kept the faith, but there was a range of, um, of leading economists who began a certain amount of soul-searching about whether they'd come to be too complacent in the assumptions they'd made. Um, famously, Robert Lucas said that we've kind of solved the problem of economic stabilisation in 2003. Obviously, that didn't look like a very realistic uh, account of what was really going on by two thousand seven, eight, nine. Um, so what happens uh, within the fund is there's a kind of re-evaluation of the premises on which policy prescription and policy advice was being given, which was not to so much to seek new ideas, but actually to recover an older set of ideas which were already sedimented within fund thinking and practice. One of the interesting things I found in the research was how the fund obviously has a long history of kind of operational work in in lending in conditionality and financial programming and, and and these other practices that goes back to the 40s and therefore between the 40s and say the 70s was imbued with a broadly kind of keynesian view of the economy because the economists who ran the fund for its first 3 decades were schooled in that in that world those ideas and those practices and those models are still integral to how the fund works today, even if those Keynesian ideas have become less kind of in favour and less prominent and perhaps less visible in mainstream economics and perhaps within the fund itself. Nevertheless, they're still there. And what I found during the course of the crisis was that in particular, the issue of fiscal policy and how effective that could be was a major focus for Dominic Strauss-Kahn initially, as soon as he took over as as managing director. And thereafter, an interest in fiscal policy radiated down from him throughout the staff. Uh, And then once Dominic Strauss-Kahn appointed uh, Olivier as chief economist, who's a kind of uh, an Mm open-minded economist with certain Keynesian sympathies, but with an interest in fiscal policy as well, then a new bank of work began to be undertaken looking at how effective fiscal policy might be as a stabilisation tool to counter things like financial crises or, or deep recessions. And the finding was that actually the, the prior assumptions, which have been kind of part and parcel of that mainstream thinking I was talking about, the fiscal policy wasn't very effective tool, they were flawed. There was problems with that. If you look back at the policy record and the kind of knowledge bank of the IMF and you Rerun the tests, if you like. You find that actually fiscal policy is a good deal more effective than we thought it was. The leads and lags problem isn't as big a problem as we thought it was. Some of the issues of kind of um, fiscal policy leaking out to the international economy and not solving a particular economy's problem—that isn't necessarily the case if you achieve economic coordination and so on. So the range of reasons to think actually we've missed the trick. Fiscal policy might be more useful than we thought. That was very useful and prescient and salient. Um, policy insight, because monetary policy was now at the zero lower bound, there was nowhere else monetary policy could go, and yet the economy still looked big, teetering on the edge of an abyss, and there was, a, there was a kind of demand deficiency and a confidence deficiency throughout the advanced economies, at which point, kind of cometh the hour, cometh the man, Keynes gets brought back out of retirement, if you like, within the IMF's ideas, and the kind of Keynesian market failure analysis of the crisis is developed, and the Keynesian Fiscal stimulus response to the crisis is advocated by Strauss-Kahn and by Blanchard. And thereafter, for the next couple of years, uh, the research department and other parts of the fund do a, do a bank of work to explore the fiscal policy mechanisms and effects and how powerful they might be to kind of counter um, deflationary pressures, recessionary pressures and so on. So you
0: describe a set of ideas, I cannot say heterodox, but at least there is some pluralism. Mm, mm. Uh, So how would you explain that uh, nevertheless uh, the institution is described not only by political activists and uh, protest movements, but also by some of our colleagues as the absolute evil and as a tyrant and as uh, an an evil institution.
1: How can we explain this? (laughs) Well, maybe they haven't done done enough interviews at the IMF, there would be one explanation, but I'm sure that's that's just That's being unfair to them. I think the IMF, again, it, it, it's important to kind of disaggregate the International Monetary Fund. It's not a singular monolithic actor, so not everyone holds exactly the same views within the fund. And even though its, it's kind of constitutional makeup requires what the IMF jargon has it as even-handed treatment of all of its members, and it professes to, to treat all members equally, Back on the ground, that's not really a realistic proposition, and certain countries get treated differently. They have different degrees of kind of latitude to pursue their own policy experiments, for example. So the so if we look at the periods of time in which those um, the IMF's evil accounts were developed, it's probably primarily talking about the kind of Latin American debt crisis and thereafter and the, uh, borrowing lending programs to. Um, least developed or less developed economies in Africa and other parts of the world like that, at a period when the kind of Washington consensus ideas, the kind of new classical economic orthodoxy, was at its height, which which presumed that for growth to ensue, you need kind of fiscal discipline and you need low inflation as kind of preconditions for growth. So there's a a reason... There's some validity to the view that the IMF has in in its time been a kind of very strict disciplinarian around fiscal policy and has been kind of restrictive and enforced cuts and so on. I think what my analysis um, brings to 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 our understanding that shifts the focus perhaps from that is to look at a different set of countries. So instead of these developed economies who are borrowing from the fund and subject to loan conditionalities my analysis is of advanced economies who are not borrowing from the fund. So my focus is not on loan conditionality as so much as the IMF literature is. My focus is on its surveillance activities, which get a lot less attention, but actually surveillance is what the IMF spends most of its time doing. The overwhelming majority of its activities are orchestrated and organised and geared towards surveillance. So... If we look at the surveillance, and if we look at the period post-crisis, when the, there's a kind of opening up of ideas, there's a, a heterodoxy and a pluralism, as you put it, which I think is quite right, in the post-crisis period, augured and, and encouraged from on high by the lights of Khan initially, and then later Lagarde, and by the lights of Blanchard and later Osborne. So, so it's a it's a kind of, it's a very hierarchical organisation. It's some sometimes described as a kind of command and control organisation. So, if from on high, from the most senior and and, and important uh, elites within the institution, you are being told to think outside the box to, to kind of interrogate other ways of thinking about the policy problems you're facing because of the scale and nature of the crisis, then that is a is a, is a significant spur to revisit your economic thinking. And if you look at that context, then you see a different set of ideas, not the same old evil IMF, but a much more differentiated set of policy prescriptions for different kinds of countries. So countries with more, what the IMF calls fiscal space, um, with with more um, credibility and with with a kind of longer debt maturity and without facing financing problems and and troubles getting access to to lending, those countries can do more different kinds of things, including perhaps more growth-oriented fiscal policies, than can those countries who are uh, subject to loan conditionality, facing funding constraints and having to borrow from the IMO. So it's a more varied and differentiated picture. I would
0: like to move to Europe, uh, where a couple of countries at least were um, subject to the conditionalities, for example, Spain and Greece, if I'm not wrong. Or only Greece. Uh, only Greece, Greece. Greece, Greece is, on. the, is
1: the key example. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, in this
0: case, uh, the IMF happens to collaborate with other institutions, for example, the, the European Central Bank. Um, what happens to this internal politics and to this evolution of ideas when the IMF interacts with the European Central Bank? Because I have an impression from a section devoted to the Troika and to this moment in time before the, the, the Draghi changes, the nature of the Central Bank, that there was a dilemma and there was a, a conflict between the French approach and the German approach and, and the role of IMF. What, what happens in this moment?
1: Yeah, so, I, I, so the IMF has, in the first phase of global financial crisis, 2007, say 2009, the IMF has a very good crisis. Let's recall that in the run-up to the crisis, before it broke out, the IMF was beginning to sell off its gold reserves to pay staff costs, and the IMF's loan book had dwindled to hardly any loan, so so it, its kind of business model was a bit bust, if you like. It's in the habit of, of lending um, crisis lending to countries who need to borrow money. They were finding all kinds of other ways to acquire money through international markets and so on. And there was a certain stigma attached for countries like South Korea from after the East Asian crisis. There was kind of stigma attached to taking the IMF's money. It made you look like you were a kind of a not a very sound economy and so on and so forth. So, for a variety of reasons, countries didn't want to go to the IMF and borrow money. The IMF was running short of resources, and there wasn't. Any clear sign of where the kind of how it was going to get out of, of a sort of it's almost existential crisis? What is the IMF for? The IMF was asking itself and not coming out with a compelling answer. Cometh the crisis, cometh Dominic Strauss Kahn. Suddenly, those questions get resolved very quickly. The IMF kind of presents itself and projects itself. As the the kind of source of global economic policy reasoning, steering a course for the global economy through the crisis, providing the economic coordination that only it can provide. There's no other actor in the world economy that could do that. What's needed to avert another great depression is economic coordination. Who can do that? The IMF can, and so you have the kind of heroic endeavours of of 2000 of the second half of 2008 when the the global fiscal t- stimulus gets announced and gets rallied to by all the the, uh, major economies. And then by early 2009, this this kind of um, new wave of affection for the IMF feeds through into a massive increase in, in funding from the major shareholders and a whole new series of kind of... Um, programs of, of lending and so on the IMF developed so the IMF has this has this moment where it reasserts itself as a key player as kind of global authority on economic policy and becomes um, resourced to a degree it hadn't been before so at the immediate crisis moment the IMF kind of matters way above its level of kind of material capabilities if you like its resources are still limited its staff are still dwindling somewhat at that point but nevertheless it becomes center stage and, and, it, and it kind of plays a key role in shaping the response which is broadly speaking a successful response to the global financial crisis by 2010 things have moved on a bit and the global financial crisis is morphing into a debt crisis the imf is in some disagreement with european authorities like the european central bank and so on who think that now's the time to kind of retreat and exit from fiscal stimulus as fast as we can because we've got through the we've we you know we didn't go over the abyss We've, we've avoided the disaster and therefore let's go back to business as usual pre-crisis. The IMF thinks, no, we're in a new normal phase, the world has changed and we need to think differently about policy. The Greek crisis emerges and the IMF is kind of has been left out of the initial phases of preparing for how to respond to the Greek crisis. So that goes on within the European authorities and between key member states of the European Union and the Central Bank and European Commission so that the plans are already kind of taking shape in terms of what to do about Greece and the IMF gets brought into the process somewhat at the 11th hour it's, it's felt that this would be useful political cover for the European authorities to have the IMF involved and also the IMF obviously have a tra- has a track record in terms of enforcing loan conditionalities and so on and so forth so the IMF is invited to join the Troika um, as the avant- as the negotiations with how to bail Greece out are already quite advanced. And it's their faced with the dilemma. It wants to be at the table for how we resolve what's the new crisis, given that, that it's just kind of re- reinforced its position as a global authority. It doesn't want to get left behind. At the same time, it sees that the way the crisis is being handled in Greece is not really on the IMF's terms, because certain terms and conditions of how the IMF, how the crisis will be resolved, what package will be offered to Greeks, have already been determined. The IMF attempts to shift the goalposts, if you like. It tries unsuccessfully to dramatically reduce the volume of fiscal austerity that's bound up with the conditionalities applied to, to bailing out the Greeks. It loses that argument with the European authorities and therefore um the the fiscal austerity package is, is as the ECB and the European Commission and the Germans and so on wished it to be, and the IMF's reservations are kind of are kind of ignored by and large. And then the second, perhaps even more important issue is that the IMF the conditions under which IMF has ever lent and could ever lent the amount of money being discussed in the Greek programme would always in every other instance require a debt restructuring a debt restructuring um so a substantial writing down or writing off a huge part of the debt, because that debt's never getting repaid. And therefore, to set the economy on a, on a kind of even and manageable footing for the future on an even keel, if you like, you have to restructure the debt. Now that was anathema to how the ECB saw the situation, how the German government saw the situation saw. So they argued and argued and 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 got agonized and agonized as well, because they, there was a concern that if we If we involve massive debt restructuring as part of the bailout for Greece, maybe that will panic the markets afresh, and there will be a a renewed set of kind of financial market contagions. So, nevertheless, on balance, the IMF has rules that require it to restructure debt when it's going to lend money on that scale. It overrode those rules on this occasion because it was part of the troika, because it kind of lost the argument about debt restructuring, and and that kind of sealed its fate in a way in terms of how the Greek crisis was handled in the first instance. So the IMF, partly because some of those involved in negotiating the package were not as kind of on board with the kind of fiscal policy rethink I talked about earlier. As I said, the IMF is not a monolith and not everyone holds the same view, so the, the precise personalities involved in negotiating uh, the, the Greek package are important. But uh, its ability to kind of leverage its influence within the troika to shift thinking around debt restructuring, around how to approach fiscal uh, consolidation. Did not prevail, and that's partly because of the funding structure of the troika. It only it only contributes one third of the funds, basically. So it's it's not a majority party.
0: But um, since the crisis, the European Central Bank has changed a lot. But also, there are now new institutions, financial institutions, for example, the stability, me- the European mm. Stability Mechanism. So this interaction that didn't work, as you tell it, uh, would it be better if? We hope that we've been on a new crisis, but what would happen under the current system if a new crisis arrives and the EMF is asked to interact with the European institutions?
1: Well, the, the IMF's experience with the Greek program and then the after-effects of the Greek program has been quite a painful one. It was a key spur to the IMF's own fiscal policy rethink just how devastating to growth in Greece the fiscal consolidation program was. So even though the IMF thought the fiscal pro- consolidation program should be less severe than it was and lost that argument, it didn't anticipate the adverse effect on the Greek economy being as grave and serious as it was. And once it saw that, it realized that its own fiscal policy thinking needed a kind of a reboot, if you like. And that was what explains all the work on fiscal multipliers and so on and so forth. So it was a kind of searing and 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 painful experience for the fund thereafter to be involved in that. They subsequently sought, continued to to, uh, argue for debt restructuring at every renegotiation of the package thereafter. There was a moment in 2015 when Blanchard went on the record arguing for this and and there was kind of maneuvering to try and get the Obama administration to kind of uh, align with the IMF and push for this to, to, to override European institutions. That, that that came to naught. But So the IMF's view about, say, another Greek style, Troika style arrangement is that they would not now get involved unless there was the debt restructuring that they would normally always be under every other IMF loan of that kind. That's point one. Um, the other key point about how to respond to the next, if you like, Eurozone crisis and the Eurozone architecture and is it ready for another crisis and would it handle it better? What the IMF has been arguing for, aligned with the French government, interestingly, ever since about 2011-12, is that what really needs to happen is you need to find a way to break what it calls the doom loop. That's the fact that fragile financial institutions are linked to weak sovereigns in ways that, when the bank goes down, the the financial liabilities for for a bank, bank bailout land on the debt book of an already heavily indebted sovereign state. And that just creates an adverse kind of downward spiral, which is good for nobody. And that's how they interpret what happened in the Eurozone crisis. And they've said, if that's the problem, then the solution is to break, sever that loop between um, troubled financial institutions and overly indebted sovereign states. And the way to do that is to kind of mutualise in some way the liability and to make private sector take some of the hit but so that the the problems arising in the financial sector do not get um, it's not the public sector and the government and and the taxpayer who who steps in to um, to bail things out so the idea of a banking union or full banking union as the is all about that so you can have direct recapitalization of banks by things like the European stability mechanism you have um, debt mutualisation at the European level of various kinds, so if, if more funding is needed to bail out banks, it doesn't come from sovereign sort of states. Now, were that to be achieved, and there are difficulties in doing that, very significant difficulties, were that to be achieved, the IMF thinks you could get to a place where even if a future European bank uh, is in trouble, it's not the, the, gov- the government or the state in which that bank is housed that has to step up to the plate and, and bail it out. That opens up possibilities for those governments having reduced liabilities towards the financial sector to have a bit more fiscal space to use uh, economic policy in more kind of innovative and growth-oriented ways. Really interestingly, in the last two or three weeks, the European Central Bank has very belatedly aligned with that IMF French position around full banking union and using public power as a backstop to kind of prevent uh, future Crisis of confidence in the banking sector and to prevent the debt ending up on the public book. Um, having, between 2012 and about three weeks ago, the ECB had been one of the impediments to a shift uh, whereby a full banking union could kind of avert a future financial crisis leading to another Eurozone crisis. Well, this is very interesting because uh,
0: you are describing uh, the institution as more interested in the book in particular in inequality, well in tackling inequality and you just said that they would have been more happy with the debt restructuring in the case and they want these in the future if required again to intervene and they are less interested in fiscal rectitude than we appear to understand from the press and from uh, the, the, the common discourse about the IMF uh, which is uh, otherwise usually described as a part of a conspiracy theory against the independence of nations and uh, and the well-being of, of citizens. Uh, two chapters of the book are, are about two specific cases: the French and the British case. Let's let's say something about the French case in particular, because you have named several French actors. So, is there any special relationship between France and the IMF because of its uh, chief economist and the and the heads of the of the um, institution?
1: Yeah, I've, I've never quite puzzled out exactly what the story is there, but it is definitely the case that a series of the key players in the IMF, not not just recently, but going back down the years, are French. And there is a kind of particular kind of revolving door, if you like, between senior French politics and administration and the IMF. Why that should be, I haven't completely worked out, but I think it maybe is, it relates to French aspirations of the French governing elite to kind of be major players on the world stage and seeing. France as a kind of as a, a model of civilization that has lessons to teach the wider world. maybe it's that kind of motivation that leads French policy elites to Washington to play key roles obviously as, as as key members within the executive board there's and the, t- the tendency for the leadership of the IMF to be a European that put that places um, French candidates ahead of many in the, in the queue to, to be future leaders. Um, So uh, exactly why it happens, I'm not sure, but there is a very interesting connection, um, particularly in this period, because not only is there a connection of personality, but the kind of the way that French authorities and elites perceived the crisis, understood the crisis and its legacy and understood the kind of policy ramifications and appropriate policy responses to the crisis aligned fairly fairly closely, with the way the IMF rethink had, had shifted in terms of the way IMF understood the crisis, the legacy of the crisis, and the appropriate policy responses. So there was a kind of commonality of view between the two, and in the European context that was all the more stark and remarkable, because that was a view decidedly at odds with how the crisis was being understood, as I said earlier, by the ECB and by particularly the German authorities, who were kind of holding all the cards in terms of how the European crisis got responded. Uh,
0: what about the British case mm. and the, the the debate between the
1: British economic policy and the IMF? Well, that is the, the the book is primarily about the IMF, but it's about the politics of austerity, and it's in the UK case that that comes to the fore most tellingly, and it it, it it's it's almost a. It's almost a, a perfect illustration of the different positions one can take on the kind of the politics of austerity and how to understand austerity. Um, one view taken by the coalition government, led by David Cameron in particular, George Osborne as Chancellor, and the other view taken by all the leadership the, in the IMF, including Blanchard and strauss and then Lagarde, but also particularly, obviously, by the, the, the mission team who came to undertake the surveillance of the UK economy on a series of occasions between, well, on an annual basis throughout the coalition government. So at this time, the coalition government comes into power in 2010, arguing firstly that the crisis was caused by New Labour's fiscal profligacy and by the deficits the New Labour government had run up during its time in office, which was you know, manifestly not true, but it was very powerful political rhetoric and it won them an election. So the IMF did a number of things. Firstly, it kind of pointed out in its commentary that that wasn't an accurate account as far as the IMF thought about what had caused the crisis. There were other causes of the crisis. What the, the incoming coalition government also did was to profess to engage in some quite harsh fiscal uh, adjustments and some deep cuts in public spending, point one, and to do that for a very particular reason, because they thought cutting fiscal spending in and of itself would spur an economic recovery. So then we get to this famous idea of expansionary fiscal contraction, the idea developed by Alcina and others as a view, a kind of decidedly anti-Keynesian view about what fiscal policy is and what fiscal policy does. So far from fiscal policy being something you should do, you should spend more in a crisis, actually if you spend less, that will convince market actors of your credibility, of your soundness, and that those credibility effects of a government cutting its spending and, and tightening um, its belt, as it were, will lead to a recovery in the private sector. So you don't look to the public sector for the recovery, you look to the private sector, and you don't spend more in the public sector, you spend less in the public sector. So it's a kind of, it's a, it's a classic antiquated, it's basically the argument that Keynes was having with neoclassical economics in the 1930s, what do you do in a Great Depression, do you spend more to get the economy going through, through the public purse, or do you tighten your belt and hope the private sector will pick up the slack in the end and find a way. So the the conservative, the coalition government comes in, and in its budget is a kind of expatriate fiscal contract and justification for the cuts they're planning. The IMF and its its key players within the Research Department then undertake a, a, a programme of work to examine the underlying assumptions of the expansion and fiscal construction thesis. And they, they look at all of their historical evidence and, and all their data set. And, and then they publish in the, the WEO their their flagship publication uh, a, a chapter called Will It Hurt, which basically points ask argues will fiscal expansionary fiscal consolidation, will that work? Will it and the answer is no it won't. In the conditions that all the advanced economies faces, it simply will not obtain. That is a a flawed account of or understanding of what's going on. Therefore, what governments like the UK government should be doing is not cutting more but spending more because if you're the UK government facing the, the economic difficulties of 2010 to 2015, there are a few key salient facts that make the UK economy very unlike the Greek economy. You have ready access to to market lending you have very mature debt structure you have credibility for your policies you have a a kind of assured revenue raising capacity and so on and so forth so you're just not in the position that greece was in and therefore you can do more you've got more policy space to do more with macroeconomic policy to try and reduce the scale and depth of the recession and to, to 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 stop it being as long and as deep as it could otherwise be so the imf advice throughout the coalition government was to do those things the coalition okay. government was, no, we must stick to the, the, the cuts and the austerity plans, otherwise we face a Greek crisis. And, and so the argument was about, really, does the public sector have a role to play in resolving the crisis, or should we leave it to the private sector? Should we focus on reducing deficits and bringing the debt down, or should we focus on growth? And the two positions, coalition government on the one hand, the IMF on the other, were kind of absolute long aheads. and that's why the IMF the IMF's chief economist, uh, Olivier Blanchard, said of the UK government that they were, as it, it quotes, playing with fire by pursuing the harsh austerity package they were.
0: So in this case, not only the IMF was against austerity, but even the EU didn't have anything to do with British austerity policies because it was outside the Maastricht treaties in this case. so, But even the EU has been... Uh, accused, in particular during the referendum campaign of being the cause of, of the British case, the British problems. Uh, now if we move to the conclusion uh, the key point here which perfectly suits with your uh, study of uh, the evolutionary ideas and uh, auto- intellectual autonomy the final sentence is about the importance for the funds to to, to build and to establish and to uh, work on its intellectual authority. So given the internal politics and the changes that have occurred, what, will, what should the, the International Monetary Fund do in the future to, to play a more successful role in in the world.
1: the IMF has a tough job. it really does. Um, the yeah. IMF its constitutional position limits the extent to which it can tell any of its member countries what to do. In fact it, it may not. It has to respect the, the you know the elected governments and and their their social and political priorities. So the IMF's um, surveillance interactions with governments is a kind of it's quite a complex interaction where it might think that certain policies would make more sense for X or Y governments to pursue, but if the X or Y government has no intention of pursuing them, the IMF can't tell them to do so, and just saying they should and they're being ignored doesn't help in terms of its intellectual authority either, so that's one issue. A second issue that it faced in the context of the crisis is once in a while the IMF realises its prior thinking was, was wrong, was mistaken, and then what should it do? So, for example, about fiscal policy, they realised that they got it wrong and that fiscal policy was more powerful than they thought. And Blanchard took the view that we should own up to that and kind of make it clear that our thinking has changed and we were mistaken before. But that was very contentious within the organisation because lots of people in the IMF think, well, if you go around admitting you're wrong, you're undermining your own intellectual credibility. And that's really all you've got to play with if you want to gain leverage or what the IMF traction over policy debates over governments as they pursue their policies so the IMF is in a difficult position and it it is mobilised by and motivated by a desire to kind of counter what they see as wrong headed ideas when they are being pursued for example by the coalition government between 2010 and 2015, one might surmise also by the current Trump administration they would take issue with some of those policies the IMF feels in the core of its being its role in the world economy is is to point out you know, erroneous policies and try and get countries to pursue more sensible policies that make more economic sense and that aid things like international cooperation and growth and stability. But its ability to, to wield influence is limited to countries other than those who are lending, who are borrowing money from it. And therefore the IMF, for those other countries through its surveillance as opposed to its loan activities, has to kind of subtly try and engender shifts in thinking and it has to kind of put out what it, the, the kind of, the, the policy thinking and, and the policy thinking that it thinks uh, would advance the course of, of, of global growth and stability, but it has limited ability to directly tell those particularly powerful advanced economies what to do. So the IMF is in a very tricky position. It is aided somewhat by kind of how the economics profession has evolved in recent years and there's been a kind of, something of a kind of rethink in parts of the economics profession And therefore, the IMF can draw on the authoritative ideas of of well-recognised economists in support of its views, and it can draw on its extensive knowledge bank, its unrivaled and unparalleled knowledge bank, to support its account of the economy. But the extent to which it can actually force or, or impose its policy agenda on other countries is very limited. So for me, the IMF's kind of reach always exceeds its grasp.
0: Thank you very much. This is uh, supremely interesting and I think the book uh, is a very important one because not only colleagues and policy makers should read it, but also all the critics of the IMF should, uh, should read it to learn more about what they are criticizing. Um, this was a very interesting conversation about a great new book and the title is The IMF and the Politics of Austerity in the Wake of the Global Financial Crisis published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. And this was Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University and the author of the book which is Ben Clift, Professor at Warwick University in the United Kingdom. Thank you very much, Ben.
1: Thank you.